Well, praise the Lord. So we're talking about the danger of indifference. And um, as I was preparing uh, to kind of work our way through these five verses at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, I read a story about a, a high school teacher who was assigned to teach a class that was filled with students who just didn't want to learn. I mean, these were not the brightest students, the most motivated students. It was one of those classes where you know, you kind of had to arrive very early just to get a back seat, right? Well, as the story goes, a couple of fellas got to class late one day, and so they were stuck on the front row. And boy, they could not care less about what the subject was or what the teacher was saying. The teacher could sense their attitude and see their kind of whispering back and forth, and finally just got completely fed up with their snide remarks and their overall bad attitude. So he grabbed a piece of chalk. Now I know we've got a lot of younger folks uh, here, so just to clarify what we mean by chalk, this is what we used to have in our classrooms when I was growing up, and they would write on these boards, the lessons and the words and the math problems and things like that. Nowadays it's all smart boards and digitized, and even before that it was white marker board. But in this day, this particular teacher, he grabbed a piece of chalk, he whirled around to the chalkboard, and he began to slash away in big, you know, one foot high letters, the words, A, or the letters A, P, A, T, H, Y, and then he threw two big lines under it, and then with a big flare, he added an exclamation point that broke the chalk. Well, he was frustrated. And one of the not-so-bright troublemakers on the front row kind of frowned as he looked at the chalkboard and was struggling to read the word, and he tried to pronounce it. He kind of cocked his head to one side and started spelling it out loud, A-P-A-T-H-Y. Then he leaned to his partner in crime there, his buddy sitting next to him, and he said, what in the world is A-P-A-T-H-Y? And his friend looked equally puzzled and kind of, yawned back with a sigh and said, ah, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> you know, many people in the first century Jewish Christian community had a, a similar attitude. They knew how serious apostasy would be. They knew how terrible it would be to abandon their Christian brothers and sisters and churches in this time of persecution under Nero. They knew that departing from the Lord who saved them would bring great negative consequences. And yet, they were considering throwing up their hands and declaring, who cares? Who cares? You know, right now, today, in American Christianity, we're not facing quite the level of persecution and martyrdom that the first century Christians were. And yet, I fear we suffer from the same level of apathy and indifference that those Christians whom the writer of Hebrews is addressing, as we've been talking about for many months now, did. See, apathy doesn't just happen overnight. It builds up. It takes time. These Jewish Christians had become complacent and had neglected God's Word. In fact, earlier in the letter, you may recall, the writer rebukes them for their regression and their knowledge of God's Word. Their faith grew weak. And when they needed it most, they caved. Well, that, in essence, is the danger of indifference. You know, as I, as I speak at End Times Prophecy conferences and write and talk about the subject of what lies ahead according to biblical 
prophecy, people often ask me something like this. They'll say something like, you know, why aren't more Christians awake to what's happening before our very eyes? Or why aren't more Christians paying attention? Well, the answer is one word, indifference. Indifference. You know, and what's most remarkable to me about this rapid decline of Christianity in America is that we should know better, not only because the Bible plainly warns against a latter days apostasy, a latter days departure from the Christian teachings. It also warns against spiritual indifference. But most of all, it baffles me because we should know better. We have witnessed firsthand in the not too distant past what happens when the church is silent. You know, during World War II in Germany, there were stunningly few churches that openly opposed the Nazis. A few others were neutral or claimed to be neutral. But the vast majority of churches in Germany actively supported the Nazi regime, calling themselves, quote, stormtroopers of Jesus Christ. The poster you see on the screen is a Nazi propaganda poster from 1933 that hung in churches all across Germany. And it reads in German there, quote, Hitler's fight and Luther's teaching are the best defense for the German people. Merging the concepts of Nazism with theological teaching in the minds of Christians. Christian churches willingly allowed the Nazi government to tell them when they could meet for worship and when they could not. Who could attend and who could not? When, what they could say and what they could not. And 12 years later, Christians looked back and wondered how more than 11 million innocent people were slaughtered in plain sight by their good friend Hitler. How could this happen, they lamented. Well, I'll tell you how. Apathy, indifference. By 1946, many Christian pastors were publicly confessing their sin of indifference, including Martin Niemöller. You may know the name. He's the one who wrote the famous, the famous prose bit of poetry called First They Came. He wrote this in 1946 as a sort of post-war confessional. And it's about the cowardice of German clergy, including by his own admission, Martin Niemöller himself, in allowing the Nazis' rise to power in the incremental purging of their chosen targets group, after group, after group. I'm sure you've heard this, but here's what he wrote. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. <laughs> then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I was not a Jew. But then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me indifference. As we continue our walk through the book of Hebrews, we're talking about trusting God in trying times, and we come to the fifth of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Now, these warning passages were where the writer gets pretty stern, pretty direct with his readers and reminds them of the negative consequences of turning away from the Lord. And strangely, these warning passages have caused sort of some interpretive difficulties for a lot of Bible teachers and scholars through the years, but they really shouldn't because they're simple enough to understand when you understand 
the big picture. When you understand that he's writing to Christians like you and me that were facing difficulties in life and faced with those difficulties, they were contemplating the unthinkable, actually disassociating with their Christian brothers and sisters, disassociating with the weekly assembly on Sunday mornings, and reverting back to their old way of life in the so-called safe haven of Judaism. And in writing to these Christians, as he's done for the whole letter, he talks about not only the blessings of remaining close to Jesus Christ, the one who took their sin on the cross and paid their penalty and and forgave their sin and gave them the gift of life, but also uh, the one who is far superior than anything and everything, any other system, angelic system, Judaistic system, any other system has to offer. But not only does he elevate Christ and talk about all that they have in this fellowship with him, but he gives these warning passages and talks about the negative consequences of departing from the Lord. He's not talking here about the danger of hellfire. God's children are never in danger of hellfire. He's given them eternal life and they shall never perish. But indeed, there are consequences when Christians turn their back on the Lord. And so in each of these warning passages, we've been through four already, we've talked about the caution, the concern, the consequence, and the cure. And since it's been a while, I just want to review the first four. The first one was from chapter 2. We called it the danger of neglect, where he cautions against neglecting the responsibilities of the Christian life because it might lead you to drift away from the Lord, and that would lead to very serious consequences indeed. And so he says you should pay more careful attention to God's Word. Remember that admonition because it comes up again and again if you'll recall through the book of Hebrews, and it's going to come up again in this warning passage. Then in chapter 3, we saw the second warning passage, the danger of doubt, when he says, don't doubt the Lord, because your heart could become hard, and then you'll not experience the fullness of God's rest and blessings in your Christian life. And the cure was to remember and believe the promises of God. Then in chapter 6, one of probably the two most famous warning passages in Hebrews, we came to the danger of apostasy, where he says, watch out, for biblical ignorance, or you might fall away. And then you'll become useless for the cause of Christ. And the cure was to go on to maturity, to get to know the Lord better through His Word and to become mature. And then the second most popular one was the fourth and final, fourth uh, warning passage, which we looked at most recently, and that's from chapter 10. I called it believers in the hands of, the anger, of an angry God, but we called it and talked about it being the danger of deliberately abandoning the Lord. He says, if you do that, you're going to bring shame to him and you'll face serious discipline. So you need to keep your eyes focused on the goal and the reward of being with him someday in heaven. And now we come to the final one, which is the danger of indifference. And this, in some ways, is the most serious of all. A lot of people think of chapter 6 and chapter 10, uh, which again, for some reason, puzzle Bible teachers, but it really shouldn't. It's just a strong warning about for Christians about departing from the Lord. But this one kind of concludes his stern warnings. Next week we're going to get into chapter 13, which are just sort of the epilogue of this letter and some practical admonition. But this is sort of where it all peaks. And it addresses those believers who, in spite of knowing all the truths that the writer has been talking about in the letter so far, and in spite of the other four warnings, the reader still cocks his head and says, ah, who cares? I'm going to do it anyway. It's the danger of indifference. And the caution that he begins with in verse 25 is to, again, pay attention to God's Word. Notice what he says. See that you do not refuse Him who speaks. Now you have to remember the context. Uh, Last week uh, we talked about the 
contrast between Mount Sinai and the giving of the law where God spoke and the ultimate new Jerusalem someday and the contrast between life under the law and life under this new and living way opened up for us through the blood of Christ how we can boldly approach the throne and we can access Christ anytime and access God the Father anytime through Christ and so when he says see that you do do not refuse him who speaks he's hearkening back to what he just talked about in the preceding verses when God spoke from Mount Sinai but has in these last days spoken to us through his son as he began the letter with in chapter 1 verse 1. So we need to pay attention uh, to God's word. That word refuse, when he says, do not refuse him who speaks, is an interesting word. It's the word para-iteamai, para-iteamai. And it's used only 11 times in the New Testament. And interestingly, five of them are used by Jesus in his famous parable of the great banquet. The word means to make an excuse, to avoid or to not pay attention. If you remember that parable in uh, Luke 15, uh, Jesus tells the parable about the king who has a banquet, and he says, sends us servants out to go invite everyone, and one by one, the people who were invited make excuses. And he uses that para-eteomai five times, three times, or twice rather, here in this verse. They all, with one accord, began to make excuses. And remember, the first one said, well, I bought a piece of ground. I've got to go and see it. I'm busy. Please have me excused. That's the word translated refused here in Hebrews 12.25. Do not refuse the word of God. Do not refuse him who speaks. Pay attention to God's word. Why? Well, because you might end up overlooking God's warnings. You might end up overlooking God's warnings. He, you know, he goes on to say in verse uh, in the same verse, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, again talking about the wilderness generation at Mount Sinai, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Turn away. That is, we might overlook these warnings. We might, out of a spirit of indifference, say, well, it doesn't really matter much. What's the big deal? It reminds me of what the writer said in chapter 2. In uh, that warning passage we reviewed a moment ago, when he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know, again, people tend to read into this, even though the text doesn't say anything about it, heaven or hell, and somehow think if you neglect your salvation, if you don't keep your end of the bargain, somehow God's going to take his salvation away and send you to hell, which of course goes against the entire testimony of God's word about eternal salvation. It's a gift of grace, not something we earn by keeping our end of the bargain. But nevertheless, if you do neglect it, there's some consequences. And if you neglect God's word, you're going to end up overlooking or marginalizing the warnings. And then the consequence will be you'll not escape God's discipline. You know, we talked a lot about God's discipline in chapter 12 so far. It's really the whole chapter is about paideia. We talked about that word meaning to teach or to instruct, to correct, to chasten. I'd like to dig a little deeper into this idea of discipline uh, this morning. In fact, I, I was struck by one of the things Karen said in her testimony being back in Catholic school about how, and when she took her first communion and went into the confessional and how the, the, the priest, because of her 54 sins, 54, wow, 54. that's... Yeah. Yeah. But now if he'd asked you for a list, you couldn't have provided one, right? You were just rounding up or down, which, yeah. 
But he, she gave her, she called it punishment. Well, I'm going to talk about that here in a second. But first, let's look at uh, this, the consequence here of escaping discipline. Notice he said, how much more shall we not escape? Escape what? God's discipline. That's what the entire chapter, in fact, really the entire letter has been about, this idea of discipline. He goes on uh, to say here in verse 26, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also heaven. Notice once again the author's reference to the end times. From beginning to end, the writer has pointed his readers and us, by extension, to God's coming kingdom someday, both as a motivation for reward and anticipation of rewards at the Bema, but also as a warning against God's discipline and anticipation of his discipline. The Lord's return is certain. He says, yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Remember, he started out in chapter 2. I've talked about this a lot in this series by, re by pointing the readers to, to the fact that what he is speaking of is the things to come. He's talking about the things to come. Ultimately, yeah, they're going through a rough time, but it's all a rough time. Life on earth in this fallen world where Satan is the prince of this world and the whole world is under his sway is rough we don't live our lives today because of some you know ultimate joy that we're going to find here we are to have joy now we are to, to consider ourselves citizens of heaven and walk by faith and not by sight but life is not about what we can see and feel and touch life is not about the here and now it's about the then and there and that's a key motivation but he's talking here about not escaping discipline. What is that discipline? Remember in the, earlier in this chapter, he talked about whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That's that word, paideia. And it means discipline, training, instruction. I talked last week about how the Word of God says the Bible itself in 2 Timothy 3.16 trains us, paideia. But in order to really understand the, the point of God's discipline and the meaning of God's discipline, we've got to contrast it with God's punishment. And I hope you'll pay close attention to this because a lot of believers confuse punishment with discipline. And they are not the same thing. Punishment is for unbelievers. You never find the word punishment used of believers anywhere in Scripture from cover to cover. It is exercised in God's justice to make sure justice is served. And it ultimately is because people reject Christ. And anyone who ends up in hell someday, it's because they die as a child of God's wrath, not a child of the Son, right? And it is not for their good, it is for their condemnation. And God's punishment, by the way, happens not only in eternity for those who die in their sins and die in unbelief, but we see throughout human history there are times when God says with unbelievers, enough is enough. We talked about in our Bible study hour in the days of Noah. Those were unbelievers. And finally God said, enough's enough. And he brought down punishment, and they died in their sins. We've seen this with Sodom and Gomorrah after that. We've seen this with Nineveh. We've seen this at various points throughout human history. We're going to see it, by the way, once again during the tribulation period that we've been talking so much about in the book of Revelation and in the Olivet Discourse. That great day of God's wrath, it's called. Believers are never under the wrath of God, only unbelievers. And at, from time to time... God's wrath is engendered and so much so that he brings punishment even before the ultimate punishment at the great white throne. But we need to understand that believers never face punishment because Christ took our punishment on the cross. Instead, what believers face is God's discipline. It's for believers only. It's always exercised in grace because we disobeyed. 
We've already trusted Christ, but we disobeyed. It involves God's love, and it's always for our good, for our correction, not our condemnation. For our correction. And it's only on earth. Because once we die and go to meet the Lord in heaven, we don't have to be corrected anymore because we're perfect. We've got our glorified bodies and sin shall be no more, right? So we need to keep in mind that words mean things, and we need to use biblical concepts and biblical words with biblical definitions. Now, I understand that in English we often interchange the two. A parent might say, I'm punishing my child in order to discipline him. Stop saying that. Because punishment is always punitive. It's for judgment. It's for unbelievers. We don't punish our kids in wrath. I hope you don't punish your kids in wrath. You discipline them in love. Because you want to train them and mold them and help them become better people. It's discipline, not punishment. See, believers are never under the wrath of God. Jesus put it this way in John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Unbelievers are under the wrath of God. Paul talks about this in Romans 1 when he says, The wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Talking about unbelievers who suppress the truth, right? In Ephesians 5, Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience, who in that context he talks about as being unjustified, unrighteous, people who've never placed their faith in Jesus Christ and been born again. And he contrasts the Ephesian believers that he's challenging there not to be like these people that are under the wrath of God. Colossians 3, we see the same thing in the in the. Uh, Parallel book, Colossians and Ephesians. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. And notice here again, he makes it clear, in which you yourselves once walked when you were like that. But you're not a son of, the, of God's wrath anymore. You are a child of God. And that's the reason when we get to the end times that the Bible is very clear that believers will not be present on the earth when the ultimate wrath of God is poured out upon the earth. The great day of the Lord's wrath, as the prophet Zephaniah calls it. The 70th week of Daniel, the, the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period, the overflowing scourge, that final seven-year period in God's 490-year plan with Israel. We won't be there because we've been delivered us delivered from that wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5 1 says, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. So the child of God will never face punishment, only God's loving discipline. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. You know what that word judgment means? It means punishment. It's a very specific word in Greek. Chrysis is the word. It means to judge as guilty and to condemn to punishment. Chrysis. Chrysis. It's the same word, exact word. It's used very frequently in the New Testament, 49 times, but again, never of believers. That's why Jesus said, you shall not come into that crisis, that punishment. But it's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 23, speaking to the unbelieving Jewish leaders when he says, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the crisis, the condemnation, the punishment of hell? And you can't. By the way, for those of you who are tracking with us in our Sunday morning 9 o'clock hour with the study of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 23, of course, is the lead-up to the Olivet Discourse, which is in Matthew 24 and 25, 
when the disciples see Jesus rebuking the national leaders of Israel and saying, you know, you're never going to escape the condemnation of hell. Why? Because you've refused to believe in me. The disciples then get antsy and say, well, then, you know, when is the kingdom going to come, if not now? And then his answer to that question is what we call the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' sermon about his return in Matthew 24 and 25. So again, the believer will never face punishment, only God's loving discipline. Now, uh, Karen actually asked me a question a few weeks ago after a message that prompted me to put this next uh, slide together. And, and uh, we talked about it briefly after the service, but I, I felt like we needed, everybody else would, be, would benefit from your question. And that is trying to understand God's discipline for believers more clearly. And as I see it, there are two kinds of discipline in Scripture. Two ways in which God trains and teaches us and helps us and molds us to become conformed to the image of Christ. There's what I call passive discipline and active discipline. So passive discipline is through no fault of our own. It's just a consequence of living in a fallen world. It flows from the unfairness of life, and it teaches us to trust God. In other words, it's when something bad happens to us because the world stinks. You have a flat tire. You get sick. Even worse, not everything that happens to us is the result of our own sin. Not everything is a quid pro quo where God's up there like some kind of a cosmic sheriff waiting for us to step out of line and boom, he, he gives us some trial, right? Sometimes the trials and tests of life that we talked about a few weeks ago, we spent two weeks talking about that subject, are through no fault of our own. It's what you might call passive discipline. But like all of God's discipline, the goal is to lead us to spiritual maturity, to help us grow closer to him, to become mature Christian people. But then, of course, there's active discipline. And this is the direct result of our disobedience as believers. It's a consequence of living in the flesh, living according to the flesh. When we cater to the flesh instead of the Spirit and we sin, God brings discipline, just like a loving father will for his son or daughter. Active discipline flows from God's unconditional love and teaches us to obey God. Teaches us to obey God. But all of discipline, whether passive through no fault of our own or just, you know, just the trials of life or because we've disobeyed the word of God, the goal of it is to make us spiritually mature, to lead us to spiritual maturity. So discipline and punishment, two completely different things. Punishment for unbelievers, discipline for believers. For believers, God's discipline sometimes is just living in this bad world. <laughs> And bad things happen to good people. But sometimes it's because we stepped out of line. You know, we, we, we disobeyed the clear instruction of God's word and he's going to discipline us so that we can learn to obey him and become more spiritually mature. So the cure in this warning is simply to fear God. To fear God. You know, like the confusion between punishment and discipline, people often misunderstand what it means for the believer to fear God. Fearing God means respecting Him. It means trusting Him enough to know that His way is for our good. And also to know that when we disobey Him, there will be a consequence, not in judgment or punishment, but in love to help train us. So we should fear Him. Well, how do we fear Him? The writer tells us. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, again, that reference to the ultimate goal of it all, to see Jesus face to face, let us have grace. So first of all, fearing God is born out of grace. Grace, we all know, is undeserved merit or undeserved blessing. It's the essence of salvation. 
But grace also can come in the form of undeserved ability. And we need God's grace to handle tough times. And we have it. The writer has already said back in chapter 4 that we can boldly approach the throne to find grace when we need it. And so if we're going to withstand the, the trials of life and the persecution that these believers were facing, we need grace, and we have it. And that same grace that saves us is here, Paul tells us, to teach us to live godly. I love this passage in Titus uh, 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That same grace is there to teach us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Right? So we need grace, but then how do we fear God? He says we, that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We do it by God's grace. We recognize that God only wants the best for us. We recognize there are consequences. You know, if you touch a hot stove, you're going to get burned. So you learn not to touch the hot stove, right? That's discipline, right? And then he reminds his readers that our God is a consuming fire. And I can't tell you how many times people read this passage and they come up to me and assume, well, he must be talking about hell here. Uh, but the figure of fire, more often than not in Scripture, is used in connection with believers as a refining God, not as hell fire. Context determines meaning. In fact, in the Old Testament, which is what he's appealing to here, Jewish Christians, and he makes frequent reference to Old Testament Jewish uh, situations as he did with the giving of the law. The children of Israel knew, going back to Moses' words in Deuteronomy, which we looked at a lot last week, that our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You know, jealousy is another word we misunderstand in English. It, it sort of implies pettiness, right? If you're jealous of something, oh, you're just being petty. But that has nothing to do with the Hebrew concept. God's jealousy is his zeal for righteousness that springs from his inherent holiness. And he would not tolerate, Moses said, Israel's allegiance to any other God. In Exodus 24, we read, The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. The writer wanted the believers to know in the first century and us today that God similarly deserves our fear. He deserves our respect. Not because he's judging us or threatening us with hell, but because he loves us the same way a father should love his children. He wants the best for them. So pay attention to God's word. Because if you don't, you might overlook the warnings and you'll not escape God's discipline. And the cure is to fear God. Have the right attitude and perspective about our Creator God. So life is like a classroom, and the Lord always is trying to teach us something, to train us to be godly and mature, to help us grow up. And this final warning reminds us to pay attention and heed, heed His words. Whatever you do, don't just cock your head and yawn and say, ah, oh, who cares? Instead, we need to fear God. Not as though we're terrified of some condemnation or punishment, but because we respect Him. And we understand that He knows what's best for us, and He's looking out for our good. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this reminder from uh, Hebrews about the value of, of trusting You and fearing You because we trust You. Not cowering because You're going to judge us unfairly, we praise you that our punishment and judgment has already been borne through the blood of Christ, your Son and our Savior. Lord, teach us to stay connected to your word, to learn more about you, 
that we might trust you better. Lord, teach us to, to stand firm, to not give in or give up out of apathy, but to not say who cares, but to say I care, and to stand up and make a difference. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.